because you keep cutting in and around and she's always in some stage of or she's dead and it's very frustrating <laughs> welcome to sincast presented by cinema sins everybody welcome to the sincast this is chris atkinson from cinema sins joined as always by the voice of cinema sins jeremy scott hello hello <laughs> and... sorry boring <laughs> no no that was fine and <sighs> from music video sins barrett share zubas Ooh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's that's like the, how you say shoes in spanish yeah <laughs> really? no it's not <laughs> I think it's zapatos, isn't it? It's yeah, it's zapatos. <laughs> I just remember Zubas, the uh, the the pants. I had a pair of those. Eighties. I had the a pair Zubas. of those. Yeah, I had. It went into I the nineties. Uh, Cincinnati Bengals Zubas. I wasn't a fan of their team. I thought I it was Zubas. All right. I, don't I mean, it you know, tomato tomato. It doesn't really matter. Those <laughs> pants were terrible. Guys, what makes you really angry out there in the world? I'm taking crazy pills! I'm as mad as hell! You've never seen me very upset. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who's got it? Who's got mm-hmm. it? Are you pointing at me? Sure. Okay, I think golf is pretty racist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Let's turn off the show. <laughs> <laughs> and there are several layers to this, and if you want to do your own research, I encourage you to do so. Um, where to start? Um... Go to a golf course and play around a golf in America. And the ratio of white people to people of color is Barrett, you've played golf. Mm-hmm. Ninety-five to five? Um ninety to ten? Yes. Uh, depending on depending on which part of America you're playing in, uh you see not to be stereotypical, but you see mainly uh white people and Asian American people. Uh, okay. that, are, that are out there. And if you turn on the television and watch a PGA tournament, the ratio is a little better, but it's still like 75% white people. And oh, yeah. this goes back a long, long way. The, the, the game has historically been uh, specifically for white, rich people. Um, and I made an observation to somebody the other day that um, you know, if I could afford to go play golf every single day, you know, for like a year, mm-hmm. um, which I guess maybe technically I could afford if I played at a cheap course. I don't have, I can't afford the time, but if, if I could afford it money wise, I think I'd be pretty damn good by the end of that year. Like yeah. I might even be able to enter a local tournament and, you know, and place. Uh, <clears throat> and that economic, the, the economics of golf makes it hard for people in poverty uh, to crack into that game. Um, and it's not the kind of game that your high school, uh, encourages or promotes like they do football or basketball or baseball. Um, and so when I played high school golf, I played two different cities in Indiana. You could call Indiana fairly racist in the eighties. If you want to, I'm not going to argue with you. Uh, (laughs) but I don't remember more than two people of color competing in the three and a half years I played high school golf. Um, and, you know, the Masters <laughs> is a golf tournament called the Masters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And it only, uh, Augusta National only invited their first black member in 1990. Uh, the ratio mm. there is 
the worst of all the ratios I've talked about. Um, and I just think it's sad because I love playing the game. I've played twice in the last month, just getting outside, maybe coloring those experiences toward the positive. Uh, I'm not very good. I was in high school, but I'm not now. But it's a really fun game, and I wish it were accessible to more people. There's so much about it. Uh, I could probably point you in a bunch of different directions, but it's just long been a very racist game, and I wish that wasn't the case. I wish it was more accessible to people of color and people of all incomes. And uh, it makes me mad. I'm not really yelling or ranting, but it's really frustrating. And uh, that is the end. There you Mm -hmm. go. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what. I did... Back in that heyday of Tiger Woods, and everybody brings up, including in Get Out, hilariously brings up Tiger Woods whenever they talk about race and golf, right? (laughs) Um, But uh, when Tiger Woods was winning absolutely everything from like 98 until 2002, revamped his swing, then started winning some more. I was playing a lot of golf in uh, my local municipals uh, at that time. And I saw, because that's all that I could afford, I saw a lot more African-American people out there just giving it a shot. You could tell they weren't polished. You could tell they hadn't played for very long. But because they could see somebody that looked like them out there and dominating, uh, that I saw a lot more. And when I would be paired up and talk to some of them, they're like, yeah, man, Tiger did it. Why can't I? (laughs) You know? And I was like, that's very encouraging after he dropped off. Not only after he dropped off, the general interest in golf uh, go down. But also, man, there was nothing like the excitement that that dude brought. Even the most demonstrable guys out there will give you like a little fist bump after a big birdie or something like that and then calmly walk over to the thing. Tiger used to go fucking insane, mm-hmm. man. Yeah. Like, like he's Tiger- over there dancing with the ball and everything and he's over there like, Aah! nobody like- was like that. So Happy Gilmore is the absurd end of the spectrum of what Tiger Woods actually like. Tiger Woods scared some of the people in the game when he started doing that because yeah. the game has long been proper and gentlemanly and racist. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, Adam Sandler, I guarantee you, saw Tiger Woods and the way it made some people in the game nervous and said, "What if we took that to the extreme? Like, you mm. know, somebody who who does everything wrong." I love that movie, by the way. Um, But yeah, I mean, but he had a huge impact on the game and that will last for a very long time. And I think there are a lot of young golfers of color uh, uh, that came, but came to the game because of Tiger Woods. But if you look at the PGA itself, there aren't a lot of young black golfers. Mm -mm. There are, are some Asian Americans and then there are white people and Tony Finau and Tiger Woods. And, and Harold Varner, and that's about and it. And Harold Varner. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm not – it's just – it's a game that I think is so fun and addicting that it's frustrating to see it limited, and that's all I really wanted to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with a movie rant. <clears throat> I uh, was going to uh, uh, do a rant based on some news we had earlier this morning that Jeremy sent to us and everything, but I'm just going to go ahead and, uh, get into a movie rant. Uh, but, uh, I, I, these adventure movies that come out, uh, there are two this year that I, I'm going to pick on onward and Scoob. Um, mm, um mm. both of them have, uh, 
they both of them have some sort of quest that the heroes have to go on to open something up magical, uh, you know, in some way by the time the characters are done with it though. And you go back and look at some of the things they have to do and everything. I always wonder the person or people who set this thing up, what were they thinking? Well, Hmm. what in the world were they thinking during this entire thing? Like most of the time, the movies make it where, uh, there's something, uh, they, they make some part of the story, uh, work by, uh, by having something happen, uh, you know, that helps them solve a riddle or something. And onward, there's a point where they go into this room that starts filling with water and, uh, and, uh, they, they don't know how they're, they're supposed to hit this lever on the bottom of the floor or whatever. So that another lever, another thing will open at the top, but, I'm sitting there going, it's like they, they use their dad. Who's just a leg couple pair of legs. Basically <laughs> they use their dad and the, the pair of legs goes down and it hits the, the button and it opens up the thing. And you're like, Oh cool. Look at that. They used one of their disadvantages to an advantage. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, what if you didn't have, uh, a torso father. <laughs> that was the original title of the movie, by the way. Torso father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what if you didn't have that? Are you supposed to have somebody who's like holding their breath while all the water fills in the entire room while your buddy goes through the through the the opening? And then, how are you supposed to get through once it gets to the top? Because it's going to close right back up. And uh, so, like, it, it's fun in the movie because, hey you know we've we figured out a way to make torsoless father not useless and uh and and so it works that way scoob scoob has the most ridiculous fucking bullshit of all time ever in, in, in anything that's ever been created in any indian indiana jones movie national <laughs> treasure or anything it's the worst fucking bullshit of all time <laughs> alexander the great and his dog <laughs> have created a thing that you can open into the underworld oh, oh, oh. To, to to get his treasure but first first things first you got to find three skulls of cerberus around oh, the world yes. oh yeah they scattered those, those. Yeah, like they're scattered all over the world you gotta find that shit like a horcrux yeah it's like a horcrux yeah and you bring it to greece and you bring the three skulls to Greece, and the and the skulls open up the underworld. But guess what? Cerberus comes out of the underworld, <laughs> trying to prevent you from uh, from uh, from getting the treasure and everything. Actually, not really, because the bad guy go dastardly goes in and like takes a lot of the treasure while Cerberus is outside fighting innocent people. Sweet and smooth. And uh and uh and then you have uh I was like, well, how do we close this up? So, like, opening it up required Scooby-Doo's paw because he's a descendant of Alexander the Great's dog. That's how, that, <laughs> that's how it opened. <laughs> so, so you get the three skulls, and then you still need the descendant of Alexander the Great or his dog to open up <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the, the underworld. Um, how do you close it? Oh, you need to find somebody who loves his dog. That's it. <laughs> you gotta find somebody who loves his dog. 
And so shaggy? So it's shaggy. And I'm like, <laughs> going, so wait a minute. Everything required Alexander the Great's descendants, his dog's descendants and everything. But just some asshole stoner guy can fucking put his hand on this thing and, and close it. And like, and, and also, Oh yeah, by the way, you lose somebody, you, one of the, either the human or the dog's going to be lost forever to the underworld, but Whoa, not so fast, crazy. not so Whoa. fast. If you plead with the statue of Alexander, the great, great, that shows up out of nowhere, that <laughs> five minutes later, if you plead with it, you can get your friend back. Alexander the Great. <laughs> I'm just sitting there like, okay, if you're in Alexander the Great shoes, and like I'm sitting there going, why would you put people through this? Why would you? How do you? What is this? What's this? What's the story there? I feel like the story there is more compelling than anything that you've made uh, uh, in the solving of the of the problem. Um, I, I, I like and, and and to also somehow have a deal with the underworld. Like, how do you contact for that? <laughs> like, like, you know what guys, I need somewhere to put my treasure, but I don't want any asshole to get it. Does anybody know how I can contact people in the underworld <laughs> and I can store it there? Like maybe, maybe they can charge interest. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it might have Cerberus's cell. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, a lot of times we watch these movies and we, we sit there and go, wow, wow, that went really well with the story and it's just an adventure and it's kind of fun how they solve this and everything. Nobody ever thinks about how this shit was created in the first place. And uh, anyway, that's my rant. That's a movie rant. I, I kind of like it. Nice. All right. Well, I'm going to go off off hand here and I want to talk about some some music. Just real quick. Just real quick. So recently... As of, I think, last week, uh, Taylor Swift released an album that nobody had any idea was coming out called Folklore. Mm -hmm. All right. She just popped up on Twitter and said, hey, by the way, I wrote an album according to my hopes and dreams and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Said something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And she showed the cover art and everything. She looked like the man of the woods type of thing. And I was like... Uh, be folk music all right taylor swift doing folk music probably not the worst thing in the world probably not gonna like you know explode my nutsack or anything like that nice nice and so not gonna have its way with you you know it's, it's amazing not, no. how many how many in like like remnants of barrett's ball sack is everywhere around his house things that just keep blowing his balls off everywhere man it's they regenerate yeah, they regenerate. <laughs> so, uh, so the first um, single called Cardigan uh, came out, the music video, and I watched it, and I was like, damn, that's good. And then I watched it again, and I was like, damn, that's really good. And then I was like, that's really not like anything that Taylor's done before. So downloaded the whole album, listened to it start to finish, and I was blown away. Mm. This is absolutely in contention for her best album, which I think is right now, 1989 it's in the contention for in that discussion. And it's in the discussion for best album of the year, I think. Mm. Uh, and it was written completely remotely. It was recorded completely remotely. It was mixed completely remotely. And this video that she did for Cardigan was, was acted and produced and everything completely remotely. Uh, I think doing that in this environment 
is almost should count for extra. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, it's pretty fucking amazing what she did. Not only did she competently put a, a record together, but she did an amazing record. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've been on record. There's been some great records out uh, this year. Uh, the new deal Lipa and uh, Lipa is really, really good. My favorite up until this point has been Fiona Apple's Fetch the Bolt Cutters. Didn't she do that one all in her house, too? That one? Yes, it was recorded in her house. She, this was before quarantine, but it was oh, recorded. Oh, so she was doing that house. anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Weekend had, had a, a decent one. Uh, and uh, Oh, Run the Jewels had a new one come out this, uh, this oh, year, Oh, yeah, too. yeah, yeah. But, I mean, this Taylor Swift stuff, she I forgot what a good songwriter she is because she put out some crap a few years ago that reputation album man just soured me i had to desour and sweeten after that (laughs) that album and i did because lover is generally a good album and it's written in a nice nicer mentality i think you've got me and you've got you need to calm down calm down down. and then you've got that excellent title track lover which is which is a precursor really to what she's doing here it's a excuse me it's a lot of lo-fi uh, production from Aaron Dressner from The National, one of my favorite bands, and Jack Antonoff, who she's worked with in the past, um, you know, hipster royalty uh, that was in that band, Fun. And uh, it is awesome. There's only one, like, little folksy, like, kind of guitar-centric acoustic uh, ballad about this girl, Betty, and it's freaking awesome. I cannot recommend it, recommend it enough. Uh, I think we all three are Taylor Swift fans. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Maybe not super fans or anything like that, but uh, when she does something good, it gets me excited. Yeah. Cardigan's song is awesome. <clears throat> I still haven't heard anything from the album yet. I haven't had a chance to. There's a song called Exile that she does with uh, Bon Iver, and there's a song called The One, which is the first track on the album, that are absolutely redonkulously good. So mm-hmm. I recommend. That's not really a rant. Uh, but uh, I wanted to bring in some happiness to you. <laughs> well, that's a positive rant. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and we're gonna go on to some recommends and warns and wreck warns. Totes amaze balls. There, great. It hey. won the Academy Award. Oh, for what? For best movie ever made. Woo! Do it! Mm-hmm. Wow, he's giving it his all. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and recommend a show that was foisted upon me everybody that back in the day uh and you know i guess in a way i was like i'm not ready to watch this yet i'm not ready to watch this and plus every time somebody's like you gotta watch this this is really good and it's in its like, <laughs> third season or whatever i'm like i'm just gonna wait and this and this was the leftovers this 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 oh, show yeah. um this show was in its third season when i started hearing stuff about it again and uh everybody was like oh my god this is one of the greatest shows ever and i was like okay well i'm not going to start watching it now just out of nowhere um but i i will i will give it a chance at some point so about a month or so ago i started watching it season one i was like eh, eh i guess it's 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 pretty good it's pretty good um uh and you have a lot of people that that you like in here, like Justin Thoreau, Liv Tyler, Amy Brenneman, hmm. Carrie Coon. Uh, all these people are, are great. Um, when was, the, when did this come out? Uh, I think 2014 was the first season. Okay. 
Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a story that we have, we've, we've, the, the setup is something we've heard before where, you know, it's a bunch of people disappear from the planet, uh, and nobody knows what happened to them. There was a show before this that was trying to sort of build on the lost phenomenon back in the day that had Joseph Fiennes in it. And it's I can't, 4,400. No, it's not that one. Although I think that has the same sort of deal, right? In that, the, in that more space uh, alien abduction stuff, though. Forty. Yeah, oh, I know who you're talking about. Um, it was a it was a show where it was like a like time had stopped for like uh, flash forward. Flash forward was what it was yes. called. Um, you know, there was a show that that was a show that uh, had built up. It's one of those classic cases of a show where it had built up momentum with its first eight or nine episodes, but they didn't know if it was going to be any good. So they didn't make any more episodes. And then by the time like the eighth or ninth episode came out, there was like a three or four month lag before they came out with new episodes. And by that time, nobody gave a shit anymore. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and so it didn't have a chance to, to uh, really get to the the finale, but the leftovers has that same sort of deal. You know, uh, a bunch of people on the planet. I can't, I think they say 2%, of the planet's population disappear. And some people have families where they're all intact. Some have families where they've only lost one. And in the case of Carrie Coon's family, she lost everybody. Um, Mm. And, um, and so mainly it's the first season is about uh, coping and, 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 you know, sort of the, you know, we're trying to get, we're trying to pick up the pieces. The second season is about moving on. Like they've sort of accepted it, but there's this town called Miracle in Texas where nobody disappeared and uh, people are trying to move to this town and uh, Carrie Coon and Justin Thoreau and all these, all these characters move to this town. And so the second season is all about that. And there's a really like awesome mystery that they throw in here. Anything where they throw Regina King in is really, is, is awesome. Uh, these days, uh, you know, uh, there's a scene between Carrie Coon and Regina King in the second season. That's just breathtaking. Um, uh, that's just two masters sort of, you know, going head to head in a scene. It's not really, it's not an argument. It's just more of a, a talk back and forth. Um, and then the third season is where they sort of really, I mean, the second season, they loosen up a bit. The third season, they really loosen up. And, uh, and they, and it's, it's only eight episodes. It comes to a conclusion. Carrie Coon, one of the best performances in a TV series ever in the third season, didn't Mm. get nominated for the Emmy, got Mm. nominated for Fargo that same year, but didn't get nominated for the leftovers. Um, uh, she has a scene that will uh, grip your attention for like 20 to 25 minutes, I think is how long this thing, this thing goes uh, towards the end of the series. And um, it's a, uh, it's, it's really well worth watching. I, I would say that some of you may wa- try to watch this on the first season and be like, I don't know. It, it's, it's pretty good. I think it's pretty good. Watch the second and third seasons. That's where it really, really, uh, uh, jumps up. I think if you're interested enough after that first season, you should watch the rest of it. Wow. All right. Is this an HBO joint? Yep. Yes. Okay. It Did was, you watch uh, it, Jeremy? Yes. You watched mm. the whole thing? Yes. Well, oh, I didn't know that you watched it. 
Uh, remember, I told that story about watching that crazy out of like out of nowhere. I just watched an episode near the end of season three where he like goes to an alternate reality to kill the president or some yeah, shit. Yes, and um, <laughs> I went back at like a month after that and watched it, um, huh. and I liked it a lot. You're right. I think the third season is the best. The second season is really good, and the first season shows the promise. But I uh, do remember you talking about that now, and there are three episodes that do that. Um, because there's something with Justin Thoreau's character that's uh, that's unique, and um, and uh, and uh, there also this brings in the uh, the great character actor Bill Camp, who you've seen before mm. um, in a bunch of stuff. Um, he's a uh, uh, Jeremy. I know you saw what was it the night bef- the night of. Oh yeah, he's he's the detective in the night oh, of. Yeah. Okay, uh, he's in a ton of shit, but uh, but he's uh, he's also on the leftovers. But that, that those those episodes where he goes and like you know have to kill the president and whatever, those are the ones that are they they really loosen up and they're able to do some comedy and everything. Yeah. Um, in that particular episode, uh, there's a there's a point because Justin Thoreau is playing the president and they're like telling him, you know. Uh, we're, we, you have to go to this place and you have to, uh, you, ha- we have to, you have to verify that we have to verify that it's you with the palm prints and all this other type of stuff. And, uh, and like, there's like the only person, the other person who could come in there would be a twin brother. And that would be ridiculous. And of course there's a twin brother in the episode. <laughs> and, uh, and, and there's a point where he's like, he's like, uh, he's going up to the thing and he's doing all this verification and everything. And his, his, uh, security guard goes, all right. Now you have to put your penis in that thing, <laughs> whatever. And it's like, what? He's like, there's this like little like contraption where he's got to put his penis in there. <laughs> I remember that now. It was um, a weird ass episode if you hadn't seen any of the show leading. Oh my that. God. I can only imagine what that must have felt like when you first started watching that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm on board with this show. I, I, I recommend it. All right. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Can I have two? I'll do them. I'll do one now and one after, but I want two. Yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. Because you've got opinions. I got strong opinions. I'm going to start off with the negative ones. Oh, um, right. <laughs> and this uh, this is a warn, but this is a personal warn. Um, I think most people love this movie. Uh, 2019's Little Women. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I watched this movie about six days ago okay my wife is a huge fan of the winona Ryder version mm-hmm. uh with christian bale and claire danes and that's the one that i'm most familiar with um but she was super excited about this one because it has emma watson and uh Ronan and people who i just should stop pronouncing names um <laughs> tracy Lash is in this movie chris is. um and so she was super excited and she ended up making plans to see it with a friend and her mom went and see it with her friend. Didn't really like it that much. And then went and saw it again with her mom. Didn't really like it that much. Mm-hmm. And so flash forward to five days ago, I'm watching it on stars or wherever the fuck. And, uh, I got so annoyed. I want to, I got up and walked into the other room to yell at her about this movie, like seven different times. Like <laughs> this movie I respect what Greta Gerwig was trying to do. I really do. Uh, on the, the the things, the main things I want to complain about is the shooting this or editing this out of order, um, which I think accomplishes a lot more 
to Greta Gerwig than it does to the viewer. Um, <clears throat> and there are people who love this movie. My wife's best friend loves this movie and is a photographer and talks about the use of light in each of the different time periods and uh, this article she read that explained it all and how poetic it makes. Just give me a linear fucking story, man, because the <laughs> way you end up, you end up with Beth being sick the whole fucking movie because you keep cutting in and around and she's always in some stage of or she's dead. And <laughs> it's very frustrating because in the linear story, she gets sick. She's sick for a while and she dies. It's a thing that happens in the family and you move the fuck on. But when we cut back and forth and you hire that great actress from the cut my arm show on HBO, the sharp fingers, um, sharp objects you hire that actress yeah you're gonna give her a lot more screen time and i got really frustrated at watching beth get go from sick to a little bit sick to a lot sick to dead to a little bit sick to not so sick to a little bit sick to a lot sick back to dead and it was very frustrating i was also frustrated by and i looked it up i looked up their birthdays don't come at me with their birthdays i know they're legit but these actresses all look the same age uh, whereas the ones in the Ronona Ryder version, I felt like I could see four different ages being represented. Yep. These girls in this book are all, all these actresses are all two years apart, uh, except for the girl who plays Beth. She's three years apart. And that's probably right for four sisters in a family, but they look the same age and it really freaking bothered me. It really yeah, bothered the, me. The, the last uh, thing I want to complain about is sudden Bob Odenkirk, who has no business being in this fucking movie, <laughs> because as soon as he pops up on screen, I started laughing. I started laughing. Yeah. So that's bad casting. This movie annoyed me, and I wanted to share my annoyance of the formal war. There you go. The only way I was able to uh, sort of know that I was in a different era was Florence Pugh's hairstyle. That was pretty much it. Florence Pugh would would show up is with the the young like teenager head hairstyle in some scenes, and then she would show up as the more adult hairstyle later on and everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and for a while, I for a, for a second there, I wasn't sure that's what I didn't know what they were doing with the the back and forth. I didn't know that, and it takes you a while before you finally go, oh yeah, they're going back and forth. And it took me a while to like even understand that's what they were doing and everything. Um, and uh, yeah, I agree. I kind of wish that it was more linear as well um, because I don't think this is a story that necessarily like when you go back and forth, I feel like you get different context for certain scenes uh, by doing that. Like you uh, like you enrich what you're flash forwarding or flashbacking to uh going back and forth i don't know if you if i'm making any sense well what frustrated me is there's a scene it's a beth dies scene by the way where <laughs> uh Cersei's joe is sitting by the bed and beth is sick sleeping and joe wakes up and beth is not in the bed and she runs downstairs because she's afraid beth has died and no beth is eating breakfast and she's feeling better and then bob odenkirk comes home and they have christmas dinner together with the whole family and then it cuts to her next to the bed waking up and the bed is empty and she runs downstairs thinking Beth is dead and Beth is dead. And that <laughs> is some kind of a dream or previous Christmas where she thought Beth had died, but she hadn't. But when you jump time so much in this movie, I can't tell. I can't tell if that was a dream or a vision. The, I like, I, I, like I, you know, what I was trying to say, though, is that like with Pulp Fiction, 
when it goes back and forth, well, it doesn't go back and forth. It just kind of goes back and then it comes back to the present and everything. John Travolta's character dies in the middle of it, but by the end of it, he's alive and he, you know, he sticks his gun down in his pants and everything. And it's sort of a way of saying, even though that character is dead, he still lives on uh, by the end of it and everything. It's sort of a statement that's being said by the end of the movie is, is that even though his character is dead, he still lives on in film and so on and so forth. But in this one, I took it and, and look, I only watched it the once. Maybe there are, maybe the way it, the way it goes back and forth does offer context to each scene better in some way, but I don't know. I haven't seen it maybe. enough to know. <clears throat> Well, who who are the four girls? Who it's Emma Watson, Saoirse Ronan, um, Florence Pugh, Florence Pugh, Eliza Scanlon, who's the Eliza Scanlon, sharp objects. They sure. all do. I can see what you mean by them all looking the and same. Listen, age. they're all great. They all do <laughs> great acting. Laura Dern is especially great. Meryl Streep is great. Um, I don't. It would it, it, if I wasn't so upset about it because of the recency bias. This would be a wreck of worn. Um, not a full out worn, but I was frustrated, especially at the end, because it ends up that Cersei's playing two characters. She's playing the author of the book and she's playing Joe. And that's frustrating at certain times. And I wish that, okay, <clears throat> let me back this up. Greta Gerwig goes out of her way to point out that the only reason the book ends with Joe getting married is because the publisher insisted on it. And that Joe would never have done that creatively. And that's cool. I like that she pointed that out. But she still filmed and showed us Joe's happy ending getting married. And that felt unearned to me. Like, if you want to subvert the actual book's ending by telling the public how she really wanted to end it, just end it that way. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't, mm-hmm. don't end it for Joe happy. Then cut to Cersei playing the author getting told, well, I'll only publish it if you make her married, and then she goes to buy a house and turn it into a school. Make that the ending. Don't hmm. give me... I, I I super appreciate what she was trying to do here because, you know, as a product of its time, this is not... The, the book, as you know it, is not the book she really wanted to release. She wanted to release it with Joe being single and not needing a man, and it's clear all the way through the book that Joe wants that life. She's happy with herself. And then at the very end, she gets married like everybody else. Uh, and I just wish that the movie had had decided to, to cut showing us any kind of happy ending and just show us the ending as it, as it would have happened if she'd have been allowed to publish it that way. We'll and, my, say, and now I'm done. I've taken yeah, too much time. I will say that, uh, that, uh, what makes it more recommendy than Warney though, is that Saoirse Ronan is one of her best performances and Florence Pugh is, is great as always too. I mean, uh, Chalamet's yeah. really good. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, you can't you can't watch it and not get involved in Sarah Ronan's uh, uh, performance in that because she's so so very good. Yeah, I especially so love the good. argument she has with uh, Chalamet on the grassy knoll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. While they're Where, plotting JFK's assassination, she's like she's like walking like normal, and he just explodes, and he's like, "I can't take it anymore. I love you. I've always loved you. Are you going to be with me or not?" And they have this big blowout again. Give me six weeks and I'll call it a record worn. I was just, I was very frustrated. Um, and maybe I just had too high of an expectation of what I wanted it to be when the cast was announced. Um, but uh, today I'm warning that thing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Interesting. Well, I was on the fence about whether to to watch it. I've never been a huge Little Women fan of the story. Uh, I've only seen your anti Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. Women. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but uh, I may give this a, uh, a a a little bit before I catch. Watch it. you love it. You're gonna love it. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got a wreck of warn, and then I've got to recommend. Uh, so my record warn is unusual for me because much like I was talking about, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos, uh, in the movie ad, how he just tickles my, my ribs and like my funny bone and all that stuff and how I love, I love his aesthetic. <clears throat> also have said the th- same thing about Noah Baumbach, right? Mm-hmm. The guy can do no wrong in my eyes. He's made some of the funniest comedies I think I've ever seen. He made one of the most uh, visceral groundbreaking movies I've seen in a long time with marriage story, uh, last year did hilarious stuff in Meyerowitz stories, of course, kicking and screaming, uh, from the mid nineties is one of my favorite movies of all time. So I go into Netflix and I say, I want to watch the squid and the whale, Ooh. uh, because it's the one movie Bombag movie that I have never seen. And mm-hmm. I was like, how did that escape me? I just never had any it, part of its titling part of its, Jeff Bridges looking forlorn in this fucking, not Jeff Bridges, Jeff Daniels looking forlorn in this massive beard. Uh, young Jesse Eisenberg. I don't know. I was like, uh, I just never really pulled the trigger. So I did it. Hey, this is my comfort spot. It's got Eisenberg and it's got Anna Paquin and it's got Laura Linney and it's got a bunch of people. And man, this movie uh, chaps my ass, man. Mm. <laughs> uh, this movie, God, it's, it's dark, dark. It's darker than Marriage Story. I swear to fucking God. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's totally marketed in a different way. This was an Oscar-nominated screenplay. Uh, this was produced by Wes Anderson. Has all the bona fides. Uh, and it's about this college professor slash writer, played by Jeff Daniels, uh, who was all up his own ass, like completely folded inside out up his own asshole. And he's talking mm-hmm. in this this educational jargon to his son, Jesse Eisenberg, uh, who starts to mimic his father. He basically says the same things derisive against women, uh, you know, uh, people that uh, that don't get it. Like he's got a tennis instructor played by Billy Baldwin, who I can never remember. He's Billy Baldwin, but I've started identifying him as the squinty Baldwin because he squints all the time. Mm-hmm. He's the squinty mm-hmm. one. So he's doing that, but he calls him basic, basically, right? He's saying like, ah, that people like them don't ever, you know, go to interesting movies or read books or something like that. Isn't this the Philistine movie? Like he keeps the calling Philistine. Philistines. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And so, yeah. So uh, Jeffrey Eyes, uh, Jeffrey Jesse Eisenberg <laughs> starts to ad- adapt or adopt these these corrosive features of his dad. Meanwhile, he and Laura Linney. His uh, mom are getting a divorce because she is fucking everybody. She's fucking the tennis instructor. She's fucking like dude from down the street. She's fucking another dude from down the other corner of the street. She's got the whole block covered. And he's like this, like, oh, well, he's, he keeps explaining, like, you know, I've got offers from uh, students all the time, but I never I never let them uh, come on to me and that kind of thing. And so they do get separated. They go into different houses and everything. The younger kid is not having this at all. Very good performance, but also a creepy performance because he's a 12-year-old. He's into masturbation, and he's into rubbing the 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 stuff all over everything. Mm, mm, and mm. that kind of gets him in trouble until it doesn't. 
Like there's one scene of him getting in trouble and then that's it. They're like, oh yeah, you can wipe your sperm on the, the locker. Anyway, <laughs> this is uh this is a well acted movie that's got some darkly funny bits. Laura Linney is spectacular. Jeff Daniels is darkly spectacular. Um, he ends up inviting Anna Pack when one of his students who in, causes a hilarious scene. She writes a lot about sex, right? It's a creative writing class. And so Jesse Eigensberg is sitting in and uh, she's like something about like stuffing it in my wet cunt and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and uh, on the drive back, Jeff Daniels is asking Jesse Eisenberg in a very clinical way. She's like, she's a very racy writer. Uh, I feel like she talks about her cunt too much. And he's like, <laughs> and then he's, he, he looks over at Jesse Eisenberg. And he's like, you know, she was talking about her cunt, right? And he's like, yes, yes, yes. So, uh, no, th- it does get better. There, there's, there's a therapist plays by uh, Ken Leung uh, from Lost uh, that, that really is good. There's a lot to like in here. And then there's some, some good uh, bombackisms. But overall, man, you got you to gotta watch this like in an ice bath or something like that to cool you down and just like distract you from how miserable this piece of movie making is. Even, even Bombach couldn't escape 2005, could he? He was uh-huh. <laughs> It's just a bad year, guys. Bad it year. Was. It, was, uh, the, uh, it was released on my birthday in 2005, and that birthday was my worst birthday I've had as an adult. Really? Uh, my wife had to work until like – midnight that night nobody was around i didn't get any gifts or any special food or anything like that i was just sitting there watching like at the time i think it was wipeout (laughs) (laughs) what the hell (laughs) i was watching wipeout on a standard definition tv eating ramen noodles of course you were um it's funny you said you said you know you first you said Jeff Bridges and I was like yeah yeah totally and uh, and it, it reminds me that I always get this movie even though these two movies are not the same get this movie and the door on the floor always uh, yeah that's what I thought he was talking about at first too I had to fucking Google that shit I, I can't I can't explain why because the stories are not the same at all. No. But for some reason, I always get that and door on the floor. Well, he's an asshole writer who fucks younger people. And so his wife decides to fuck a younger dude. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's more about the adultery than than squid in the whale. Well, squid, I guess squid in the whale does have a lot of it in there. But but it's not both of them. Like, you know, in door on the floor, it's both. Yeah. Um, But uh, but yeah, I always get those confused for some reason. Um, But you did see this, uh, Chris? You saw this movie? Yeah, back in two thousand five. I haven't seen it since. Yeah, and it it was supposed to be one of his best movies ever, and I I wouldn't even put it in the top half. Yeah, I can't. He's made. I think I was excited to watch this because I had seen kicking and screaming and and stuff like that, and 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 then you know watched this, and I was like. This really isn't the kind of thing that I like Noah Baumbach for. Although mm-hmm. he has the the Squid and the Whale is more like what kind of movies he comes out with than he did in the nineties. So that's true. It does it does tip his hand to what he's doing later on. I think what he probably did was catch himself and say, maybe I shouldn't go that dark on mm-hmm. this, and maybe I can get real emotions like with Marriage Story out of you know. Uh, clearer places instead of just wire, you know, miring in this muck all the time. He's yeah. become more focused, and I love him. 
Right. Mm. Miring in the muck. All right, everybody. It's time to talk about movie once again. <laughs> movie. There's a uh, documentary on there right now about an independent wrestling league called Fake It So Real. Hmm. Um, and I find this type of stuff fascinating uh, because it's people who sort of dedicate their lives to a, uh, a struggling or fledgling league of some sort hmm. um, with, I guess, the hopes one day that they might make it big. But it it seems to be a secondary type of thing for these people like to because they want to go out and wrestle right they want to be at least a star in their in their own tiny universe you know uh but but much like if you've ever seen beyond the mat which uh talks about how yes everything is staged but it's also super dangerous and you can Mm. uh, (laughs) uh you know you can really get super hurt and and everything it's one of the things that uh i i think the one of the main things about wrestling that people don't understand when it comes to it being fake and everything. And I'm not a, I'm not a wrestling fan. I'm, I'm out here to say right now, I'm not one of these who watches, you know, WWE and everything, but I can see why people do watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I found the documentaries way more fascinating than the actual like sport itself is and everything. Uh, but to see people going out there and putting their bodies on the line and everything, for this, for, you know, for crowds that are actually bigger than I thought that they would be, but they're renting out a room in some church most of the time, (laughs) you know, and it's like, you know, a hundred people maybe, um, you know, that that's what they're doing it for. And then, so, so the whole thing, uh, fake it so real is, is following around these wrestlers and, um, and uh, it follows around uh, a lot of their homophobia and sometimes mm. racism. It's mm. uh, this is set in somewhere in uh, North Carolina. Uh, it's the Millennium Wrestling something. I can't remember what it was, but um, but uh, you know, uh, it, it follows them around in their lives and what they what they're having to deal with. And this is all they've got. A lot of them do. Um, and uh, and uh, you know, this is what. They, and uh, it's sort of an interesting thing too when they when somebody who's like 37 shows up and says they want to join the league and they ha- the the two guys in charge of the league sit them down and is like all right I w- I hear what you're saying you want to get in this is where we try to talk you out of it and he's <laughs> like he's like let's explain I'm going to have to explain to you what you're going to go through when you're doing this this wrestling stuff and everything and that's fascinating I find all of that type of stuff fascinating um but uh, it's on there right now fake it so real is on movie uh it's uh it's really good i love that type of stuff i do too man you even watch something like um a show like glow or a movie like the wrestler mm-hmm. and and you get it's obviously fictionalized but you get a a sense of the stuff that they actually go through even fighting with my family which i caught uh, yeah. fairly recently goes into like the intricacies of how if you don't do this right you're going to get fucked up, man. Mm-hmm. Like, like David Arquette. A, yeah, yeah, like well, yeah. David Arquette. <laughs> yeah, so no, yeah. I, I, that's on the list. Just from the thumbnail alone, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right up my alley. So I got to check that out. I saw yeah. the most ridiculous movie with David Arquette that we should talk about not during the movie ad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'll mention a couple just real quick. The first one is considered by many, including our friend uh, Leonard Malton, as one of the best films of the year. 
and it's called First Cow. Uh, and Ooh. I've been wanting to see this, uh, mayor <laughs> first cow on movie, <laughs> uh, just because, you know, effusive praise has been, uh, you know, really a fix to this. It's about, um, a trapper, uh, out on the Oregon trail on the frontier, uh, back in the uh, 1820s or so. And it's directed by, uh, a woman named Kelly Reichardt, uh, who I'd never seen anything from. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so I start this movie and it's lush. Jeremy, you would love the scenery out there. Pacific Northwest, gorgeous uh, scenery and all that stuff. And then I kind of waited some more and I was like, all right, okay. A few things happen. The guy's a cook. Uh, mm. He cooks really well. Mm. And uh, then some more space goes by and then <laughs> something else happens. And I swear to God, now this movie's two hours and it's not bad. It's a good movie. It's objectively good, but it, it, it's so weird because I love stuff, deliberately paced stuff like Jim Jarmusch and Stanley Kubrick, uh, these directors that can hold a scene uh, for longer than you think you, you you could. But man, this one, I just couldn't get into. I was like, it's available for rent. And I thought it was very cool that it's available on a uh, service like movie. It's only it's cheap. It's only like five dollars or something like that. Uh, but you can have access to this first run movie stuff was the cool thing. And I'm glad I watched it. It is just not a movie for me. Uh, I need my movies to do just a, just a little something, just, just a scotch. Mm. You know Mm. what I'm saying? Mm. Yeah. Conversely, a a movie that does a lot and it's all fucked up. is a movie called dog tooth. The only reaction uh, that I had to this movie, you know how in fight club, uh, Brad Pitt comes downstairs and he's in his robe. It's after he's done uh, uh, having sex with Helena Bonham Carter. And he comes down and he opens the refrigerator and he looks at Edward Norton. And he's like, you've got some fucked up friends, man. <laughs> <laughs> that is what I thought about this movie. This is uh, this movie's about an isolated family. It's like the village. If the village was was uh, like weird and fucked up, like even weirder and fucked upper. Like, okay, re- okay. like where where people are having sex with each other within the same family and they're barking like dogs and they're it's fucked it's fucked up but <laughs> it's really really good yeah it's, it's it's darkly 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 funny uh, there's a dance sequence in this one that is every bit as funny to me as the one in the favorite which Jeremy hates but uh, <laughs> I think this movie is fascinating it is not for everyone. But it is fascinating. Chris, I think this is right up your alley. Yeah, I've wanted to see this since it came out, and I, I forgot about it. Um, where does this rank in the Yorgos Lanthimos uh, filmography? You know, all of those, and I even like Killing of Sacred Deer. I would say Favorite has got to be first. I would say The Lobster is probably second. Um and this would probably be third, a little okay. bit above Killing of a Sacred Deer. Okay, uh, he's just got my he's got my funny bone. He's got my he's got my toenails. Does he have your orange crush? He has yeah. my orange crush. Yeah, orange crush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So all of that is available either in the uh, well. Okay, so it's interesting. Chris mentioned one that's in the thirty day lineup. Uh, I mentioned one that's available for rent in the library, and then there's one that's free in the library. You know how you can get that free, Jeremy? Ooh, by going to movie.com slash cinemasins. That's right. 30 that's days right. free. <laughs> 30 days free. Thirty. Day- you can watch all three of these movies and then a bunch more for free for 30 days. 
for absolutely nothing just by going to mubi.com, M-U-B-I.com slash CinemaSins. And then, you know what, you're going to love it and you're going to keep uh, at it because it's so it's so freaking good, man. You see stuff that you would never have access to. Mubi.com slash CinemaSins. 30 days free, baby. Do it. But I'm going to bring up a... Um a series that came up on shutter and is going to be on Blu-ray August 18th. And we interviewed the people who uh, are involved with this. It's called cursed films. Um, There are five episodes uh, dealing with uh, movies like poltergeist, the exorcist, uh, the omen, the crow and uh, twilight zone, the movie. And, um, uh, and, uh, and the discussion is, uh, you know, he- here's why these movies are considered cursed. And here's, here are some people who believe it's cursed because of this type of stuff. And here are some people who don't believe it's cursed because of cer- certain type of stuff. And, uh, Poltergeist is, is an interesting one because, you know, Poltergeist, because Heather O'Rourke would later, would later die, uh, because Dominic Dunn would die later on, people who were in the movie, um, people said, well, this is cursed. And then they would say, here's the reason why, because they used real skeletons in poltergeist. <laughs> and, uh, and we got to talk to, uh, we got to talk to Jay Cheel who directed it and everything. He's like, he, he said he loved getting the guy who did the, um, who was responsible for putting those skeletons in, in the movie and everything. He's like, because this guy has over the years, everybody who's ever tried to talk about, poltergeist being cursed has gone towards the well it's probably cursed uh thing whereas in this case the the filmmakers were trying to be a little bit more even-handed about things and he says and and one of the great moments of the of that series is him saying uh you know look at this movie they used real skeletons this movie uses real skeletons you know if you had uh, you know, if, if you're, if you're on a production that doesn't want to spend a whole bunch of money making real, making skeletons that look real, all you have to do is call this, this, uh, place down in California somewhere and they'll give you some skeletons. And- <laughs> skeletons are us. Hey, skeleton? Yeah, exactly. I can get you to tow by, I can get you to tow by three <laughs> exactly. o'clock, dude. With nail <laughs> With nail And, uh, and so like, uh, you know, he's, he's, he talks about that and he's like, well, none of those productions were cursed. So why is this one? So considered that way. And, and, uh, so you have people, uh, who are giving reason to this whole thing, like saying, look, you know, if it really was cursed, a lot of other things would have happened or more, or more would happen to other productions that were troubled and so on and so forth. The, the twilight zone, the movie one is, uh, is, is just, incredible because they get uh one of the uh he was a, he's a set decorator or art uh art uh, department guy his name is uh, richard sawyer i believe and he was he was uh the guy who built he built the set where vic morrow runs across the water and the helicopters are supposed to come in and and everybody knows the story about twilight zone the movie vic morrow died in that scene along with two kids because helicopter uh, crashed uh, during it because the pyrotechnics were so bad. And, um, and uh, I didn't realize there was footage of this shit. Um, yeah. 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 And, um, and like they, 
Jay Chiel told us that, you know, we use the one that, you know, you don't see graphic stuff. There are scene there are, uh, cause they had five cameras on the shot. Oh, there, wow. there is one. And they showed that one on the news back in 1983. They showed Jesus. it on the news. Um, and, uh, and so like, uh, that talking that talking to that Richard Sawyer guy and just watching him just be like, you know, he's a, he's John Landis and I went out to this place. I think it's like the Indian dunes or something like that. He's like, we went out to this place and, uh, and he says, I had, you know, it would be cool if we had a shot that, that came in from the village and backed out over the water and, and we see him running with the kids and everything. And, uh, he's like, well, you know, and then I, I went and, uh, I I did some research on some, on Vietnam villages and everything. And, uh, I built the set and, uh, we did the shot. And after he says he did the, then we did the shot. You you just see him just, you know, well up, just break Mm -hmm. down a little bit and, uh, talking about this interviews in there are, are fascinating him, uh, the director of poltergeist three, which is the movie where Heather O'Rourke ended up dying of her condition. Um, they had filmed most of poltergeist three and the studio said, we've invested a lot of money in this. You're going to have to finish this movie. And, (laughs) and he's like, everybody had voted not to do this, do the rest of this movie. And that's why you had this stupid ending at the end of poltergeist three, where, you know, like they didn't have Heather O'Rourke anymore, but they had to have somebody, uh, bringing, like bringing her out, like a, bringing a different girl out, not showing her face, uh, during the whole thing at the end. And, um, Stuff about the crow is fascinating too. Um, but really go watch, find curse films when it comes out on Blu-ray or whatever. I'm sure it's on demand somewhere too. It might even still be, I don't know if it's going to be on shutter still. It is. But, it is on shutter still. Um, but, uh, seek that out. Not every one of the movies that they look at are, I would say considered cursed. There are, there are, you know, some aspects of each one where there's just been tragedies or something like that that have happened. So, like, not the whole production, but um, just as a movie lover, I think it's it's worth uh, seeking out and just hearing the stories and and hearing the 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 you know somebody say, yeah, I agree, it's cursed because, and then sit, turn, people turning right around and saying, it's not cursed. Here's why, you know, and blah 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 blah. It's very fascinating. It's only 30 minutes each episode. You can get mm. through this in, in no time, and it's great. So I highly recommend Cursed Films. Is The mm. Exorcist one of those that you don't consider or generally isn't considered cursed? I know it's a part of this series. But there, was, there was some, there were some, uh, I think there were some things that happened around The Exorcist. Um, I know Linda Blair had issues later on. Well, yeah, they uh, ask Linda Blair because Linda Blair, you know, because people associate the actor with the movie mm-hmm. more than, than them being as human beings. So Linda Blair is only like 12 or 13 years old and everybody who runs into her thinks that she's the fucking demon. Yeah. yeah and, yeah. and, and they ask her, they said, did you really have to hire security guards around you around that time? And she goes, I don't talk about that. Ah, ah. And rightfully so. So her right. And she was, well, you think about that showbiz kids documentary and it didn't even come close to Linda Blair and what she had to go through Mm -hmm. Yeah, for such an indelible performance that we're all thankful for. I think the exorcist did have some, some sort of things around it. 
Uh, I get, uh, after watching all five, The Exorcist and The Omen had some of the same kind of... The Omen has probably the most uncanny things that happened around its mm. production. They get Richard Donner to talk about it. It's really fun hearing him yeah. talk about the, talk about the movie. But there's some things in there that you're like, I don't know if we can really verify that actually happened. They're like in the, they're in the lore now, like uh, a production assistant or somebody was driving down a road, got into a wreck and close nearby where his wreck was, there was a sign pointing to a town called Amen, O-M-M-E-N, uh. and and uh 66.6 kilometers away and you know there's stuff like that that yeah, where you're gonna read in some stuff yeah yeah and gregory peck's plane that he was supposed to get on uh that he ended up getting taken off of the plane ends up crashing and and stuff like that and you know they're they're talking the, the omen one's fascinating because they're like maybe it was blessed to be yeah, no made. kidding. All these things. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. a crashing flight is a good thing, right? Huh. So, huh. anyway, it's uh, it's a fascinating. Uh, I think I, it's just it's just worth watching. It's it's so you can you can you know you can uh, digest that in an afternoon. It's no, it's no problem. It's fascinating stuff. All right, I am going to recommend a movie that came mm. out last year, another twenty nineteen er, and I remember being excited for it to come out. And then it came out, and I read a couple reviews that were just okay, and then I never heard anything about it ever again. Mm. And this is a movie called Harriet, about mm-hmm. Harriet Tubman. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Starring Cynthia Erivo from Bad Times at the El Royale. Mm-hmm. I am now convinced she has a contract clause that she gets to sing at least three times a movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I have not admittedly done the research on Harriet Tubman to know if she really did sing this much, but I love hearing Cynthia Erivo sing. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, and I'll even tell you the times that she sings in this movie, I can't tell if she's really singing like the characters really singing, or if it's just more of an artistic interpretation of mm-hmm. the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll leave it up to you there. There's nothing in this movie that crushed me like 12 years a slave. Um, and it's PG 13. So maybe that's the violence talking. Um, but this is the story of Harriet Tubman, which, uh, most of us learned at least a little bit of in school. She was a slave that escaped, uh, and made it to uh, Philadelphia where she meets guess who Leslie Odom jr. Aaron Burr from the original Hamilton cast (laughs) (laughs) who does not get to sing in this movie. Um, he is a free, uh, black, American in Philadelphia that helps register escaped slaves uh, as citizens. And they get to choose a new name uh, because Harriet was not her birth name. It was, uh, they call her Minty, uh, but it was uh, something Minty. Minty. Anyway, um, so she's introduced then to uh, Janelle Monet, a uh, free black woman who owns a house that boards new new black citizens who have escaped from the South. And so Harriet goes from slavery to living in basically a mansion overnight. And the Janelle Monet even says, first thing we need to do is get you a bath. And Harriet's like, well, you know, basically I was paraphrasing. I'm sorry that I was a slave and that I've been running for the last seven days and I've been in the dirt and I smell bad. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, she gives a great performance. Uh, Joe Alwyn, Taylor Swift boyfriend. 
I'm yeah. convinced he can only appear in period pieces. Yeah, that's his, yeah. That's his contract clause. <laughs> he plays the son at the farm where Harriet ran away from. And the son and the mother uh, have had several slaves run away, and they're losing money, and the community um, wants to buy their farm from them. So they're basically hunting for Harriet Tubman the entire movie out of revenge. And he is great. He is a great sniveling racist slave owner. Hmm. And I don't mean that as humorously as I phrased it. Uh, I have not thought he was bad in anything I've seen him in, but I have not seen any acting from him yet that made me go, Hey, but this one did. Um, And so basically Harriet can't, she just can't live this life up here being free, knowing that her husband and her family is still down there. She goes back for her husband. Uh, he's already remarried. <clears throat> um, they, they, he did think she was dead. Um, but then she realizes she's come for her family, her mother, father, brothers. And they basically, she, it almost plays it like she gets hooked. Like there is this like obsession. Um, it's very much like Schindler's list in, in that way, in that, once she gets a taste of rescuing other slaves, she is compelled to keep going and keep going. And even after the Civil War starts, she leads a freaking battalion into battle. She's one of the only female commanders to ever lead an American military unit into battle. And mm. they free slaves in that scene. And that's one of the scenes where she sings because they come on boats up to the shore and she stands on the front of the boat and she starts singing. And she's singing... Um, it's, they're all spirituals. Uh, you know, come down to the water. The Lord's going to move the water. I don't remember the words exactly. Is it wade in the water? Maybe. Wade in the, yeah, it is wade in the water. Mm. Um, and then there's like a 10-second pause as she's still singing, and then hordes of uh, runaway slaves come up over the ridge and start running for the boats um, to get rescued. And I don't know if the movie is saying she really did use that song as a call to let slaves just in the brush know it's safe to come out which does kind of make sense hmm. she i mean she changes her identity she starts they she has everybody call her moses they think for the longest time the white people in the south think it's a man who's hmm. freeing all these slaves fascinating story my history book in high school didn't go into anywhere near enough depth it was simply she helped freed slaves and she was one of the underground railroads biggest you know champions uh, but I was thoroughly entertained all the way through uh, good performances. Um, and, uh, I got educated along the way and, yeah. uh, I was thrilled to see Leslie Odom Jr. Show up. Um, cause I saw him on, on screen. He's electric, even, even in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, so there you go. I'm giving you a recommend. It's um, amazing. You've got three amazing singers in those three main roles with Janelle, Mon- Janelle Monet, Cynthia Erivo, and uh, Leslie Odom. Leslie Odom, Jr., yeah. You know? That just yeah. happens to be, by the way, we can act our asses off, but we can yeah. also sing awesomely. Yeah. Um, Araminta Ross. Araminta. Uh, there you go. Yeah, Araminta Ross. Is the Thank name you. that uh, Harriet Tubman had at birth. I want to go. I want to see that. That's on one of them HBO things, right? It is. Nice. Uh, I have a fun one uh, that I completely missed back in 2012, even though the poster was everywhere. And for some reason, I really wanted to see it. It was in the middle of my uh, uh, transition from uh, Nashville to Chicago, but it was a Brad Pitt movie called killing them softly. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it's about like a, like a hitman or a, like a fixer, that kind of thing that gets called in to correct a problem. The problem is Ray Liotta. Uh, this cast is amazing, by the way, Ray Liotta, 
uh, is like the game master in this. Uh, I think it's in New York or something like that. He's this game master. And he runs all the poker games and, uh, you know, he's got everything set up. And back a few years ago, uh, Ray Liotta, whose name is, is Marky, Marky decided he's going to knock over his game because who would suspect that he would do it considering it's technically Which his is a money. whole episode of the Sopranos, I think. Yeah. Well, hello. Oh, interesting, interesting <laughs> note there. So, uh, he does it. And, uh, some guys are talking about this, some lower level guy, level guys, including Ben Mendelssohn as an Australian, uh, crack addict, um, who steals purebred dogs and sells them for profit. It's a very good performance. Uh, they're talking about it and they're like, you know what? What if we did the same thing? Who would not believe that Marky would do this again? He did it the first time, right? And it's actually kind of an ingenious plan. And so that in walks Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt says, okay, here's what I think is going on here. I think these lower level scamps are doing this and blaming it on uh, Ray Liotta's character, but we still have to kill Ray Liotta. And uh, the the handler, the minder, the, the, the mafioso is played by Richard Jenkins in this. Another excellent awesome. performance. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So half the movie is Richard Jenkins and Brad Pitt in the car, like talking about strategy and stuff like that. And he's like, why do you want to kill Marky? Like he didn't do it. And he's like, man, nobody's going to believe you. If you tell them a bunch of scamps from the street just came in and shot up an established poker game, people are going to do that all the time. You want to blame it on Mar- and Ray Liotta's character. We'll take him out. Nobody's the wiser. Bob's your uncle. Fanny's your aunt. Brad Pitt's performance in this movie is a completely unique Brad Pitt performance. So, you know, he's, he's got generally two speeds. He's got Cliff Booth, like cool as ice, that kind of thing. Rusty in Ocean's Eleven, that kind of thing. Uh, and he's got, he's got Manic, he's got 12 Monkeys, he's got Snatch, you know, that kind of thing. He's, he's got some range. He certainly is different in Moneyball. He's different in a few things. But this is him playing on the edge, like he's not in complete control of everything. Things spiral out of his control and he's got to keep spinning the plates where it really gets electric is when fucking James Gandolfini shows up as a huh. fellow hitman. And man, they just, the, the verbal wordplay between these two guys that, you know, have known each other for a long time. The characters themselves have known each other for a long time. He's basically reinforcements to Brad Pitt's character. And he just wants to to get in and get the job done. Didn't tell Brad Pitt that he's jumped parole and that he's putting the whole mission in danger and everything. He's into hookers. He's fucking everything that moves. He's uh, he's drinking uh, himself to death and everything. And it's just absolutely great. So now Brad Pitt's got to deal with him, and he's got to deal with Marky, and he's got to deal with these these little uh, uh, these little hippogriffs or what? I don't know what the like whippersnappers. <laughs> whippersnappers over here that are trying to fuck with this thing. So he's got a lot going on. And the the title, which I thought was very cool. He's talking to Richard uh, Jenkins in the car and Jenkins is just like, you know what? Just walk up to him and then pop him in the cab in the back of the head, man. And you can tell Brad Pitt just takes a second. He's like, you ever kill somebody? And he's like, no. And he's like, it's, it's not that easy, man. Like they beg and they plead for their lives and they call for their mom and they they do it. They piss themselves. They do all kinds of stuff. I want. I like to kill them softly, which means from a distance where they don't see it coming. There's no fear. There's no pain. There's no sorrow. And he puts in that little speech there. He puts in in stark relief the image of a serial killer. Right? 
Like he has some sort of emotion. He's like, if I have to do this job, I want to make it as painless for them as possible, get my money and get my job done. But I also don't want all that. I've got enough on my soul right now uh, <laughs> that I don't, I don't need that extra begging and pleading and me saying as the angel of death, no. Don't it you put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> it is a really, really good movie. I think both of you guys, it's got very much shades of uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead in a much different mm. context. Uh, it's just, oh man, it's it's really, really, really good. Brad Pitt and James Gandolfini, it was a, a reunion from the Mexican set. I yeah, guess. right? Well, True Romance <laughs> was what I thought. The uh, Oh, God damn, they've been in three movies together. Yeah, Gandolfini comes in asking him about, and it's when Pitt's playing the stoner. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Pitt tells him all that stuff, and then at the end he's like, don't condescend me, man. Um, <laughs> but, I'm fucking uh, have you kill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm fucking kill you, man. Um, I saw Killing Him Softly uh, when it came out. I don't remember much about it. Uh, I do remember there being like uh there's something they, they use a framing device in there some particular election i can't remember which one it is it's the 08 election and, and that's one thing that i uh I, I mix up because on all of the the car radios when they're driving on all the tv sets with the poker games going on it's either bush talking or obama talking mm-hmm. and you hear the stark realities between those two ideologies mm-hmm. and i think it's a nice framing device it's not overdone it's definitely there Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, 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 it gives it a sense of time and place that I think is very, very cool. Yeah. They, uh, this was, uh, Annapurna pictures that, mm-hmm. uh, this was like, we sort of looked to a 24 to come out with our sort of, uh, you know, obscure artistic, but in a lot of theaters type movies these days, Annapurna was that for a while. I don't know if they, they may still be but they've gotten a little bit bigger over the years and they're, they're attached to a lot of different things. I think but like, uh, it, back in 2012, when Annapurna came out with this one, it was like, yep, this is, this is an art film. For yeah. Sure. They were on a roll and they're on a similar role as a 24 is now. Uh, this was a weird production status. I, I haven't really dived into it much, but they were affiliated with the Weinstein company for distribution. And then, uh, Pitt's company plan B, picked up some of the costs too. So it was those three plan B, which I think has a pretty sterling reputation, uh, Annapurna, which has at that time a really good one. And even back in 2012, Weinstein company was mm-hmm. <laughs> having some issues floating around. So yeah, it was wild. Uh, but I'm glad they got it done. That's a, that's a good, good movie. I would totally recommend that. Yeah. I remember, <laughs> I remember really liking it. Um, cause it was just different. It was a different kind yeah. of, kind of movie and I hadn't seen anything like it. Well, what was um, what was really weird is that the the poster is almost I don't know if iconic, but indelible. Like you can you can pull that thing up of of Pitt just straight ass level holding the shotgun with that slick back hair and everything. And so you think to yourself it's it may be like a drive type of movie or something where mm-hmm. he's a killing machine. But no, he's got he's got to figure things out. And he's got to put the puzzle together. And then he's also got to factor in his own emotion, his own well-being to this. I think it's cool. Yeah. Mm. All right. Uh, we ready for some questions? Question. Question. I got something to say. I want the truth. I am listening. Okay. Hey, guys. Hope you're doing well. Like you, I hate when movies tell instead of show. What I find even worse, though, is when movies show, then tell. 
My example is Return of the Jedi, when Jabba the Hutt references, My favorite decoration, Hichuawa Wookiee. <laughs> and the camera shows us Han Solo in the carbonite, only for C-3PO, the annoyingest character in the franchise, to say, Look, R2, it's Han Solo, and he's still frozen in carbonite. Yeah, that's exactly how he says that. <laughs> this are- question. God, go on. What are some other examples of this that you guys hate? Thanks again for keeping the podcast going. Thank you. I for just listening. real quick, I want to give props because this question actually made me think for me quite a while <laughs> because I wanted to answer it accurately and I didn't have anything spring to mind quickly. Yeah, same here. Uh, but uh, the, the thing that did come to mind was uh, in Casino Royale. And look, I know poker. Not everybody knows poker. But the scenes where Bond is at the table playing poker and it cuts over to Giancarlo Giannini and Eva Green are fucking annoying. Um, so like every time Bond like makes a huge bet and there's like tons of money in the pot and everything, he turns to Eva Green and he's like, there's over $14 million in that pot right now. James, James must go all in or else he's blah, blah, blah. Like just telling you everything about the poker strategy and whatever. And obviously a lot of the poker strategy in this movie is wrong. Um, but, uh, it's, it's the most annoying part of that movie for me. One of the most, I mean, the poker in general is kind of like, you know, come on, but, that that right there, him like every time Bond does something, Giancarlo Giannini and his and his and in his great voice, I love hearing him talk. But like, yeah. but like, you know, James Bond must do this now or blah blah blah. And it's like <laughs> you just you let it know, play. Yeah, you want to know an even more egregious example of that uh, is uh, in Maverick. So in Maverick, uh-huh. uh, they've got that final table, that final scene where uh, Mel Gibson's character is playing against you know, his rivals, essentially. There's a Japanese guy, there's a uh, Alfred Molina guy, and there's another guy. And uh, James Gardner goes over to Jodie Foster's character and does the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. He's like, uh, the Spaniard has a straight flush to the 10. What's going to beat that? Now, okay, exact same thing as what he's doing with Eva Green. But Jodie Foster won her way on this riverboat as a player, she's a fucking <laughs> poker player, yeah. a professional poker player. You don't need to ex- explain all this. Like, oh, what's, oh, daddy, what's a straight flush to the ten? Oh, yeah. I don't understand. Yeah, well, you know, like, and that may be even worse than what I've come up with because Eva Green <laughs> is not a poker player sure, in, sure. in Casino Royale. And you do, I guess, in some way, you need somebody to tell. A, a you know an ignoramus of some sort on the screen what's going on that but that's why i like movie like rounders which never like really revealed any kind of thing like that uh a lot of times and i and i told you guys when i first saw it, watched rounders i was like i don't know what the hell happened in that <laughs> i don't even know what beats what or anything so like they don't but they don't go out and tell you you have to kind of like figure that out on your own and everything but uh, but but when they go the uh, the complete opposite end the spectrum of it, it's way more annoying than not knowing. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. It is. They do ride that line where Malkovich is like, "That too could not have helped you. Mm-hmm. You would uh, you did not improve. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. now I bet the whole fucking yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, I bet it all. <laughs> Lays down a monster. 
Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. <laughs> Should have paid am, me on that. <laughs> I'm checking, and uh, the answer I wrote down doesn't even qualify, so I'm fucked. Uh, I've got one a thing, little bit off topic, too. The other, uh, the one I wrote down was you know, too generic, but you know, if you show me the Eiffel Tower, but then you put the text on the screen that says Paris, France, you are showing and telling. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are times where geographic locations are needed for the viewer, but uh, the Eiffel Tower, I... God, I, I hope that's not one. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, if I come up with a better answer before we're done recording, I will jump in and give it to you. I apologize for the question answer. I praised your question. I thought about it for a long time. And I still came up with a bogus fucking answer. Well, this is the ideology of that sin, right? Of the, in case you confused it with New York, San yeah. Francisco mm-hmm. or something like that. Because it's not just the Eiffel Tower. If you see the egg-shaped building, you don't need to know it's fucking London. If you see the Empire State Building, you don't need to know it's New York. If you see the Willis Tower slash Sears Tower, you don't need to know it's Chicago, right? There's certain things where you don't need that. I love it in um, in Police Squad, which was the six-episode uh, pre-Naked Gun TV series that uh, that came out. Um, like, they'll not... They'll, They'll show the Eiffel Tower and then it'll be like some completely different place uh, that they put on there. But like, like, you you know, they'll be in their office and they're they're obviously around L.A. or whatever. But in the in the background outside the window, you'll see Eiffel Tower or they'll be driving down the road. And there's like the the Grecian uh, stadium, (laughs) you know, in the background and things like that. Uh, they, They do these things where they were like tonight's episode the the uh you know the the terrible worker and the title episode would be completely different on the screen that they would show. <laughs> anyway i've got a fairly generic answer too because i can't think of specific examples outside of one but i know it happens all the time and it's the zoom and enhance from an impossible angle and then them saying there it is my mm-hmm. my example is the scepter uh, which contained the Tesser, no, not the Tesseract, the Space Stone, the 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 Stone oh, of yeah. Immunity, or whatever the shit it is. <laughs> so, so the the scepter gets knocked out when Loki gets uh, bombed uh, from uh, from his little scooter thing, and he lands on Tony's uh, thing. He and Thor punch and fight for a little bit, and the scepter gets lost. He goes somewhere else, and everything like that. Then uh, Scarlett Johansson and Stellan Skarsgård look down, and all of a sudden. In the middle of all of this destruction and craziness, hey, there's that scepter. And then they quick zoom onto it. And they can see it perfectly. They can figure out exactly what it is. And then Stellan Skarsgård can remember that he accidentally uh, put a, a failsafe in there. I hate it when that happens, when somebody is from an impossible distance away, especially an old bastard like Stellan Skarsgård, who can see like down fucking 10,000 feet and knows exactly what it is without the aid of glasses. I'm, I'm sick of that thing. That, yeah, that's the thing that they do a lot where you they, you they sort of make you forget that the character in the movie can't possibly see that. Yeah, because the camera does the work for him. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 uh, and so, like, yeah, that happens quite a bit where you're just like, oh, yeah, he notices this or whatever. And I'm like, well, yeah, but if he's at his distance, how in the world does he even notice these little tiny details and everything? Not, not only does that happen, but very frequently they'll turn to their compatriot and be like, 
not if I stop him first with <laughs> that. And so now that other person has to look over and see <laughs> that thing too. Yeah. So that's showing, then telling, then zooming again. Yeah. All right. I thought of, I thought of, well, I actually thought of two. Um, I've been watching a lot of the Matrix sequels lately because they've been running them on BBC. And uh, at the end of the Matrix 2, uh, the, the, the Squiddies are down there and they throw the bombs. And, 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 and so everybody gets out and runs away on foot. And then they stop to watch the Nebuchadnezzar explode for like two and a half minutes while Morpheus is like, my ship, uh, dream to dream and whatnot. Um, <laughs> first of all, they should be fucking running at this point, but they are just watching the ship. But then they're only like a hundred yards away. They're very fucking close. And the squiddies start moving towards them. And I swear to God, one of them goes, here they come. <laughs> and it's the dumbest thing ever. Also, and this one tongue in cheek, there, you know, there's that one episode of The Simpsons where Bart is doing stuff and we see it. Yeah. And then Milhouse tells us by saying, look, it's Bart. And he's doing stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, it's Bart. And he's doing stuff. There's it's a, a Calzar. I don't know if this. Uh, yeah, I don't know if this uh, this qualifies, but uh, it's one of the most mind-numbingly obvious things that's ever been said in the movie. And then the movie itself, uh, you know, makes fun of it. But still, it it, it to go all that way to make this joke is is still mind-numbing in species there's a part uh where somebody has died and it's like an awful death and forrest whitaker who's the empath comes in and goes something bad happened here (laughs) and michael madison's like yeah no shit But oh. you're too like I like if you were like I was when that when Forrest Whitaker first says that you're just like you motherfucker. Of course something <laughs> bad happened here. I have one more example from my uh, uh, zoomy zoom thing in Knives Out. It takes a way it takes a while to play out. In Knives Out, Ana de Armos notices the blood on her shoe. Like one of the like the first day, right? Like oh, the first yeah. morning, she notices this tiny, tiny, tiny little spot on her shoe. Yeah, she, you know, so, she doesn't notice it. It's the camera that notices it and, and tells you, uh-oh, blood yeah. on the shoe. Oh, that's yeah. right. The camera does. Mm-hmm. And then all the way at the end of the movie, uh, spoiling this for anyone who hasn't seen it um, a little bit, um, Daniel Craig says, well, I suspected there was something askew when I saw something, the blood on your shoe. It didn't rhyme in the movie. <laughs> it's not like the shoes. <laughs> but... but you know, wow. first of all, I think we actually mentioned this in the Sens video. He didn't know if that was like dirt or mud or like something like that could've without been. getting down on his hands and knees and inspecting that. Well, yeah, it could have been anybody's blood. Uh, and and She's a nurse. And considering the uh, the way a plumber does the the knife thing, there's no way that blood would have gotten on her shoe yeah, in, yeah, the yeah. First, yeah. in the first yeah. place. But uh, but yeah, to, to, and and it and it, I think it was still bright red after like a whole <laughs> week or something, you know. Uh, kind of boring question. I disagree. But what is your preferred streaming service? There are so many nowadays, and I was curious if you have a favorite. Right. Um, there are times. There were times there when uh, the the big three Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Hulu. Uh, I could find myself on one or the other way more than the other, depending on what new thing that they had come out with. 
Um, but in the absence of an actual original series or anything like that, I go to Amazon prime a lot and I don't like contributing to Jeff Bezos's uh, huge, uh, coffers every single time that I do something, but you go to Amazon prime and just nearly everything is there. Um, mm. and if there, and if that something isn't free, then, you know, you can rent it for $3. You can usually find it there. Um, mm. so that's why I go there most of the time. Uh, you try to like Netflix, um, because all the companies wanted to do their own thing. They don't have very many like things anymore that if you want to watch a movie or a TV series or something like that, they don't usually have it anymore. Um, and, and you know, they have a lot of like obscure type movies, but there's not, not really a lot. And mm. so you go to Amazon prime and they've usually got the thing that you want. So I go there. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's, let's be honest. If, if you pay for any streaming service, you know, you're helping some billionaire get richer. Who's Very true. an asshole. Um, and you know, if if I were able to buy everything in my life from the mom and pop shop down the road and buy local, I would do it. But mom and pop down the road don't have every episode of Frasier, Friends, and Seinfeld to purchase, mm-hmm. which Amazon Prime did. And as soon as Friends left Netflix, um, <clears throat> I went over to Amazon and I plunked down the money to buy Friends, Frasier, and Seinfeld my three favorite modern sitcoms that I almost always have one of on in the background, including friends right now on mute. Um, and so between that and I have chosen when I purchase movies digitally, I have chosen to make Amazon prime that destination because that's where the TV shows are. So I've got 15, 18 movies. I watch so much that I just bought them like the Martian and forgetting Sarah Marshall. Uh, and those are all at Amazon prime. And so every night I'll turn on, Amazon Prime and watch one of those movies or one of those series uh, while I'm writing and working. Um, and you know, just by sheer math, it's Amazon Prime. But uh, in terms of like, if you, if we were breaking the question down, who makes the best original stuff or who has the best interface or what have you, you know, it might be different answers, but that's just the one I use the most. Who do you think does have the best interface? Netflix, but I, I don't agree. think, I don't think uh, any of them are great. Um, uh, or intuitive. You don't think, uh, I, I mean, with Netflix, man, you can, they've categorized it as such. The algorithm is as such to where even if they don't have the dark Knight or something like that, there's a lot of related titles in tone in acclaim stuff like that, that you wouldn't even think of, or I wouldn't even think of that show up. And I'm like, Okay, they don't have the Dark Knight, but yeah, I actually could watch two the days. Problem the problem is Valley. all the shit. Like <laughs> the problem is all the shit that that you don't see unless you search, and I this agree, is across every yeah. platform. If I want to see a, a, a sci-fi movie, and I drill down to movies and then sci-fi, every single every single service will show me some movies, but they have hundreds more on the service that yeah. I wouldn't know about if I didn't search by keyword. So for all of them, I give them bad marks for interface just because I have to search basically every single time. But Netflix, I think, has the best, maybe what I should say is the best player um, in terms yeah. of like, like I don't ever get downtime with Netflix like I do with Hulu and Amazon Prime where it buffers for a second. So. I agree. And you're right, Chris. If you want something, either the our Xfinity On Demand is pretty good about having yeah. something or Amazon, and they're usually around the same price too. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's. Pretty much, if I'm in one room or the other, that's what I'll choose. 
uh, if I absolutely have to watch something. But if I'm looking for, say, a stray recommend or something like that, I will most of the time go to Netflix and be like, you know what? Uh, I could go for a romantic comedy right now. I could go for a Bombback movie that I haven't seen yet. You know, I could go for an action comedy. And they do, you're right, they don't have nearly as much as they used to. But I think they still do have uh, an, a, a good enough selection that I'm still impressed. It's like going to Family Video versus Blockbuster back in the day, mm-hmm. you know? They may not have everything, but they've got enough. And then with Amazon, anytime I want to watch something and like it's just kind of in, in the background looking for something, it's always something that I have to pay for. And that annoys me. And I'm like, damn it. Mm-hmm. I could yeah. probably just find it on Netflix, but uh, if I probably the only thing super annoying for me is when I am searching for something is when there are multiple titles of that thing, you know, yeah. like yeah. and 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 they'll so when we we did an interview with Neve Alger, I was looking for a movie called From the Dark, which is some horror movie, and I I and From the Dark is a generic title. I understand yeah. that. So like any search uh, engine is going to have a hard time because it's going to come up with a whole bunch of different things. But there are two movies called From the Dark and they both had similar like kind of um, storylines to them and everything. (laughs) And so like the first one that I went on, like this had to have been some sort of self-published movie that I found because it was it was just like the if the the first five minutes don't make you turn that movie off. Then there's something wrong with you. I think generally as a human being, <laughs> just a, it was just a very, it was like a terrible, like, like, you know, it's kids partying and, and like, like just, it was all, it, you know, just, it just made me feel disgusting watching. It. And, um, and, uh, and then, uh, but you see, you'll see, I, I found the right one, but you'll see, two different versions of the right one where they have different posters and different pricing points. Sometimes there's stuff that's free that shows up as a three ninety nine or whatever. Um, and mm. uh, I ran into that with uh, one, some other movie that I ran into it. Uh, it said, it said, Oh, it's three ninety nine. But then I saw another one right next to it. But if you, if you're, if you've got tunnel vision, mm-hmm. you're probably going to be like, well, I want to watch this movie. So you paid the three ninety nine. but then there's, there's this free one right next door that you missed. So, so sometimes they, they mess up the pricing points and everything, but all in all, I don't really complain too much about that stuff. The, the search function, when you type in three letters, usually you got the movie that you need. So, yeah. And I'll actually, I'll give a shout out to movie, not in within the ad because when I wanted to watch something like Dogtooth today that was not available on anything, when I wanted to watch First Cow to see what that was all about, uh, they were the place that had it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been I've been really impressed with their library in addition to the new stuff that you can get exposed to. I've literally wanted to watch those movies and I couldn't find them. So, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good player. Uh, it's, a, it's funny that neither of us mentioned uh, Disney Plus as a destination. And they just haven't had enough so stuff. Yeah, there's so much limitation. I wanted to, in the background, throw on something that I've seen before and I could just, you know, pay attention to the fun scenes. And so I threw on Endgame. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go through that. Uh, All right, I'll go through that. I've seen that a million times. Oh, here's where Thor's fat. 
Well, uh, oh, I nah, will. All right. And I just went straight to the end, the end panel. I will it. say this about Disney Plus, even though I haven't been, you know, I, I went on there to watch Mandalorian. I went on there to watch um, that unfortunate movie that came out. Um, <laughs> the Anna Kendrick one? No, the the stupid movie that came out that I can't remember the name of. Um, I you know not Oliver Twist, but some dude's name, some kid's oh, name. Oh, Artemis Fowl. Artemis Fowl. Yes. I you know I saw I watched I watched those two things, but I will say this about Disney Plus: when you go to you go there, they have the heavy hitters right there. Like they know what you want. They've yeah, got the Marvel, true. they've got the Pixar, <laughs> they've got the animation, they've got the Star Wars all sitting yep. there. So, you know, those are probably going to be the initial things that people want to see from the service. And then you search and, you know, like I said, I've had one, I've had only one issue with Disney Plus, mainly because I've only used it uh, sparing the amount of time. I couldn't find angels in the outfield that one day. Like, it's weird to me that they have this whole library and they're like, nah, fuck angels in the outfield. Fuck Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Right. Fuck him in his ear. Fuck him in the other ear. You know. Fuck Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. Danny Glover. Fuck him. Fuck Air Bud while we're at it. Yeah, exactly. Hello, Sincast. Been listening to you since the podcast, but have never written in. It was great help to me as I packed my bags and moved from Oslo to Dublin. I believe that's out of this country. I'm jealous. Over four years ago now, I have a lot of anxieties, and having and having you with me as I left home after 30 years was of great help. Thank you so much. Oslo and Dublin aren't the same place? Uh, no. They, they sound both cold. Apparently not. <laughs> they might even you- be in different countries. Might be. Ah. <laughs> Do you have any experience with or any favorite Scandinavian movies? I'm not talking about Ingmar Bergman movies, but more of the 90s to 2000 era, like the Danish Pusher series that gave us Nicholas Reffin and uh, Mads Mikkelsen or some other of the countless horror movies Norway produced in the 2000s. There was also 2001's Elling that was supposed to get a U.S. Re- remake with Kevin Spacey, but guess that didn't work out. Keep on keeping on, Marius. Thank you, Marius. What do you guys think about Scandinavian movies? We love Scandinavia. I love it. I love Dublin in Scandinavia. (laughs) Um, I'm going first because I have the lamest answer because I have the least amount of uh, street cred on foreign film. Uh, I've seen the new Mira Pace Dragon Tattoo movies. Um, There are three of them, right? Yep, there are. and I found them to be excellent. And I found the girl with the dragon tattoo to be so excellent as to be one of those cases where I, you know, Fincher does Fincher on the American remake. And I always appreciate Fincher's direction and his eye. But that story was already told expertly. Mm-hmm. The, the bottom line is Americans aren't going to watch a film with subtitles. So in order to expose them to this story, you have to Americanize. It's like, let the right one in and let me in. Uh, and, uh, you know, but they're great. She's great in them. Um, and, uh, I would suggest you check them out if you've seen the American version or the one with, uh, Claire Foy, the spider's web girl Mm -hmm. in the spider's web. Yeah. It's got an authenticity to it that even a master like Fincher just couldn't quite get there. I don't think, even though he had, uh, Skarsgård in his, in his movie, uh, that authenticity of like, a, a filmmaker that knows that location so much and mm-hmm. knew me pace, knowing the language so well. And the guy who played Blumkist Blumkvist, 
was was really attached to that character. Uh, he wasn't a heartthrob like Daniel Craig. So right. yeah, I, I think I, I just I I prefer that a little more. Nothing wrong with the remake, but I just prefer that. I like the remake. I just uh, the, the the original is great. So yeah. Yeah, I had, uh, I I think there's going to be some movies that just you just forget we're Scandinavian on all of this. Uh, I tried to look this up uh, in a way and like sort of look up all the movies and everything, but you know you br- you brought up Nicholas Winding Revan and and like a movie like Valhalla Rising was something that I thought was interesting, even though it was it, it might be a sleeping pill to to a lot of people, but I just <laughs> think it's just an interesting way of of, of making a movie. But uh, I went Lars von Trier with this and. Uh, Dogville uh, was a, a movie that I, I find just it's, it's oh. you know what? Nicole Kidman yeah Nicole Kidman I have uh, seen this Stellan I got Skarsgård. more Scandinavian street, street cred street cred than I thought God yeah <laughs> well that's what I, I mean that's what I'm saying I mean even though this movie isn't like necessarily uh, Scandinavian and in, in any nature Lars von Trier sort of adds that uh, that element to it. Um, uh, and I, I have, unfortunately, and I know these are like, uh, movies of shame for me. I've never seen dancer in the dark. I've never seen breaking the waves. I've never been able to get my hands on them. Uh, but, um, uh, the, those, I know those movies are good and I want to see those at some point. I don't know how Scandinavian those movies are, but, um, but uh, I do want uh, Dogville is something that I recommend, even though it's kind of got some some hard material, like all Lars von Trier movies do, to get through and everything. So that's the one that I pick. All yeah, right. it's interesting. Right. You know, right. uh, Melancholia I think takes place in Denmark or uh, some Scandinavian area. Um, Breaking the Waves I thought took place in in England, um, and Melancholia is probably from a scenery point of view and from a um, I don't know, just a, just a, a contextual point of view. Seems like the most Scandinavian there. Breaking the waves on the IMDb, the country of origin is like 10 countries. So oh, nice. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, but all of them have the Lars von Trier, uh, feel to them. Even Nymphomaniac one and two, uh, has that, you know, I, maybe it's just, uh, uh Alexander Skarsgård. Mm-hmm. Not Alex. Stellan. Peter. Stellan Skarsgård. Mm-hmm. Too many SARS and There's scars. too many, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe it's just him. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it all just has that kind of cold northern feel to it. And yeah. I dig it. I dig it, baby. So that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Yay. We should all do right. it again next week. Let's yeah, we it. should. Um, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, keep going to, uh, Syncast presented by CinemaSins on Facebook. We're also on SoundCloud. We're also on CinemaSins Twitter. And we also have a music video sins Twitter and we're on discord. And if you want to get on discord, you can go to our Reddit page, find it, uh, find the link on the right side, or you can, uh, private message me on Facebook and I can give you a link there, but that's going to do it for this week. It's Chris Atkinson, Jeremy Scott and Barrett share. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Comment on our episodes on our SoundCloud page. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And be sure to visit cinemasins.com.
<laughs> oh I'm telling you, there's no reason that that should be funny, but it's right. great. It's the politeness of what's your name? What's your name? <laughs> what's your name? Yeah. Like, I want to know your name before I say fuck you. Yeah. Fuck you, Tony. <laughs> yeah. In the extended one, it's only like a few more seconds, but at the end of it, uh, he's like, you know what I did? The, the deer's like, you know what I did last night? And the dog's like, don't you bring my mother into this. Don't no. you bring my mother into this. And uh, the, the deer's like, I built a fire over there. And he was like, oh. And he's like, and then I fucked your mom next to <laughs> He's like, fuck you, Ezekiel. Fuck you, Tony. He's going to yeah. be like side Joe Bob, you know. Oh, yeah. All that stuff I did. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to like, you know, we're, we'll, be talking about, we'll be talking about this presidency for a long time. It doesn't matter if he's out or not. I can tell you all you want that I didn't do that, <laughs> but they have seen it enough times that they're going to think that you did. So you're, and, and I'm and like, look, you know, you guys are, you came out here to fix it. I'm not paying anything. I don't have anything to deny at this point, <laughs> you know? So I don't remember, I don't remember he keeping the hook, but apparently that's a thing. Keeping a hose uh, hooked up to your spigot can cause Whoa. a pipe problem. <laughs> I hope that's not true. I've got one hooked up, of course, outside by the barn, not the one on the side of the house. But it's like an old lift up kind of like spigot as opposed to like a crank. And I've mm. got a hose hooked up to that. But, you know, I know the thing is down. So yeah, yeah it should much. be fine. I, I mean, no honestly, <laughs> I don't think that's I, I mean, even if it does happen, that's got to be rare. Right. Because people do that. All yeah, then the it gets time. frozen on. Yeah. 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 <laughs> An old guy at the. Uh, <clears throat> the shop when my grandfather was still alive, uh, Billy and Billy, man, I've never seen somebody smoke more cigarettes in my entire life than Billy. Mm. He was one of those guys where he'd take a, a, take a drag and inhale and it would never come out. It was the most amazing <laughs> thing. It would never come out. It was just, he just like, he just absorbed it. <laughs> but he got convinced I had this, uh, 86 charger and it had a good motor in it, but I never really fucked with it. And uh, I had to bring it in. Something was wrong with the exhaust. And he's like, you've been redlining this. And I was mm -hmm. like, what? No. And he's like, yeah, you have. I've seen it. It's doing the exact same thing that you were talking about where yeah. there was no convincing this guy that I, first of all, it's an automatic transmission. So I was like, how am I going to do that anyway, Billy? <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, I swear to God, I'm not redlining this. Thing. I'm not fucking fast and furiousing, even though that wasn't a thing yet. And uh, <laughs> Oh, it was a thing. And he fucking was convinced he was talking to my grandfather. He's like, your boy is re he's redlining this. <laughs> and by the time I came and picked it up, Billy comes over with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. He's like, I want to apologize. He did <laughs> redline it. No. I was like, fuck you, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Why well, haven't he figured out that you weren't? Because nothing about the transmission had been fucked with it at all. It was all in the catalytic converter. Oh, uh, okay. And I was like, Bill, I don't know what to say to you, my man. <laughs> You just said so much about cars that a <laughs> <laughs> It's called the Brad Goodman's something or other. <laughs> there is dick all over that movie, by the way. Dick, 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 dick. It's, it's the old Papa Dick. It's the old, it's the little man Dick. Little man, there's dick all over the place. The old like uh, patriarch is sitting around, like uh, his his wife's all topless, and he's he's just got the dick hanging out. He's already done. He's already done with the thing. I got Madonna's big dick coming out of my one ear. 
<laughs> My wife's in the driveway with an ass in her cock. Yeah. <laughs> My wife's in the driveway with an ass in her cock. <laughs> oh, shit. That, that, uh, that's a funny sure. story, too, because I think he he like he did that accidentally, and then mm-hmm. they just kept it because it was so funny. Yeah. And everybody sort of kept everybody kept their face straight, which was which was even better. Well, it also it shows how frustrated he is at that point where he can't even keep an ass from a cock. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's and if it's anything like what you just described with old uh, new cow. New cow. <laughs> <laughs> new old cow yes. first, first oh, cow man.